Welcome to Automotive Insiders, the podcast series presented by OESA, the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. You'll hear from automotive industry experts on the critical issues that are impacting the mobility landscape. Get actionable insights on how to thrive in Automotive 2.0. Now, here's your Automotive Insiders host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Hello, I'm Bonnie D. Graham for Automotive Insiders presented by OESA. Today, our theme is Restart, Recover, Resilience, and you all know what that means. I'm joined once again by the dynamic duo of William, he lets me call him Bill Newman, North America Executive Industry Advisor at SAP, and Mike Latkovic is the Vice President at Capgemini and currently the North America Market Leader for Automotive Suppliers. Let me welcome each of you, and in case somebody doesn't remember all the wonderful things you do, Bill Newman, why don't you give a brief bio for yourself, and then we'll hear from Mike. Welcome, Bill. Hey, thanks, Bonnie. Good to be back with you, and uh, hello, listeners. Thanks for uh, joining us for Automotive Insiders. Um, Bill Newman here, 30-plus years in automotive and discrete uh, manufacturing, planes, trains, automobiles, and uh, in my role at uh, SAP, I work with um, executives to understand what their strategies are moving forward in terms of uh, what they want to do, their new business models, future capabilities. So very excited to join you once again for this program. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you, Bill. It's always a good conversation with you on board. You and I go way back years of Game Changers Radio at SAP, and I'm always happy to see you here on Automotive Insiders. And now let's get your partner here on this conversation. Mike Latkovic, say hello, and please introduce yourself again. Thanks, Bonnie. Good to be back with you. And Bill, of course, is always similar to my, uh, my colleague, Bill, 20-plus uh, years of consulting and discrete manufacturing uh, no trains, but lots of planes and many, many automobiles started in the uh, auto industry and continue to represent our, uh, our client base in the supplier arena. Uh, we uh, enjoy a pretty uh, healthy set of relationships in the supplier uh, market and are always excited and humbled to be part of helping them uh, deal with the level of disruption that they have. Uh, they have and of course, we now have the most recent pandemic that we'll be speaking about uh, today as well. Uh, but Capgemini as a whole is, is just really pleased to be part of the, uh, the automotive ecosystem and with a focus on suppliers as well. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure to have you on as well. Bill Newman, let's start with you. Restart, recover, resilience. I know you and Mike sent me a couple topics you want to cover under this theme. So let's talk about the restarting reopening, however else you want to read that, restart of the automotive industry. And you told me that subtopic is the world wobbles. Bill, let's hear from you first, and then let's get Mike to chime in. What does this mean? Well, just a snapshot for our listeners. Here we sit, you know, June 1st of 2020. Most of the companies have started to go back to work, but it's going to be a bit of a fits and starts. So, you know, the whole, the whole big part was getting everybody into a place where we felt comfortable being able to restart going and going back to work and starting up plants. Um, we've, we've, we've learned a couple of things over the last several weeks. A, not everyone is comfortable coming back to work or is in a position to come back to work. I think a, a, a recent OESA um, a broadcast indicated one OE brand uh, was at initially an 80% return to work participation rate, which is good under, under normal times, but we want it to be we want it to be better. That's not I necessarily believe sustainable. But I also believe that as we start to see things with some of the parts makers coming back online, China's had to close some plants and restart them. We're going to have uh, some some typical furlough and shutdowns on on a case-by-case basis. Um, A couple of OEs have had to do that already. And I think that uh, probably a um, uh, mid-June, early July is probably what we're hoping to kind of get to that place of steady state. Not where we're back to production levels in in, uh, February times, pre-pandemic, but, but, you know, something that feels and and behaves a little bit uh, more reliably and more a little bit uh, more predictably. So that's, and in the meantime, you know, we're going to have what I call the wobble. You're going to have these fits and starts. 
I, I personally had my own experience with this. I have a German vehicle and it had an electrical problem. I blogged about it recently on LinkedIn and uh, my own personal experience was it took two weeks to get uh, the replacement parts to uh, fix the electrical switch. So um, that's going to kind of how it's going to be for a little bit of time now while we kind of get back up onto our feet and, and, and learn to walk again as an industry. Thank you, Bill. Mike Lakovic, love to get your thoughts. Agree or disagree with Bill? He said mid-June to July. And just for level setting for our audience, we are recording this conversation on Monday, June 1st, 2020. So we're just about at the start of summer here. Uh, Mike Lakovic, what do you think? Well, I love the term wobble. And Bill, I don't know if you're going to uh, do pull a trademark on that, but I love the term wobble because things are progressing. But clearly we see that they are, you know, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. I'll start with the consumer and work backwards. We know that the, we know there is demand there. The demand has, hasn't vaporized. Uh, there's still, uh, there are still movements in the market for people to replace vehicles and things of that nature. Uh, leaderships though, are going to continue to find their way through their sales cycle and how to fulfill that demand. I think that they've reacted remarkably well in terms of moving to virtual sales environment. We talked about that on our last episode. Uh, so we will start to see that, that the demand stabilize a bit, both, both in terms of uh, the demand, you know, the, the actual market coming back to bear, but also in how that demand is captured, right? Because if you don't have accurate demand, if you can't forecast what you're doing, it's just going to have consequences throughout the entire supply chain. Um, the OEs, are having, you know, I think anyone can easily jump on the news and see that uh, we are, for the most part, kind of back to work, but we're going to continue to see some plants turn on, some turn off, some pause for a week. Maybe they've got to shut down a few shifts while they figure out some new health organs, you know, some new health approaches. Um, So wobble's a good term. And then, of course, that all filters down to our supply base. And in this case, um, we still have what I would deem very... uh, unstable demand. What is it we actually have to go produce? And there's a lot of great guesswork that's occurring right now. But until we really see all that demand starting from the consumer flowing backwards start to stabilize a bit, I think you've got a lot of really smart people trying to come up with some really good guesses. And I and I do mean that with uh, the highest form of compliment. Uh, but it does feel like a little bit of guesswork right now. Uh, June, July timeframe, I hope that by June and July, we've got a good grasp for what the rest of the year and maybe the next you know, three quarters look like. I, 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 I'm bullish that we have a good recovery. Uh, I think, Bill, you, you may be thinking something similar. Uh, anyone's guess is as good or better than mine for sure. But I would like to see us at least know what the next few quarters look like by the end of June or July. Thank you both. Bill, anything you want to say back to Mike before I go to some of the notes you sent me? I have something interesting I want to ask you. What do you think? No, I, 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 I'm, I'm with Mike. I, I think that a three-quarter outlook is, is we will get a chance to look at that. And whether we, we believe it or not, I think it, it really is going to be whether or not the, the, the things settle a little bit, as I like to, if the wobble settles. Um, I, I will say, based on some of the McKinsey recovery scenarios, we're definitely looking at more of a modified U-shape recovery than a hard V, um, and that's simply because we weren't able to restart as quickly as as we as we had hoped for. And uh, so everybody's everybody's kind of keeping their fingers crossed and, and keeping um, good intentions. And it's uh, it's really going to be up to. A lot of our uh, government officials and those in the health uh, services space um, to make sure that they give us the right advice we can take to hopefully avoid a second and third wave of the um, of the virus. Thank you, Bill and Mike. A question for both of you. I was speaking a couple of weeks ago with Julie Freem, the president and CEO of OESA, and she mentioned, and that was, I think we were in, let's see, early May, spoke with her, and she said that the auto manufacturers in the U.S. had stopped production, were not producing for, at that point, it was about 45 days. Do we know the total number before the literally the wheels started rolling again, Bill or Mike? Just curious for, for our listeners to know. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, there was a lot of conversations about, you know, what it, what the recovery was going to look like. And, and I'll, um, 
I'll refer listeners back again to some OESA briefings where um, we've actually seen some scenario plans where there's a sharp difference between recovery scenarios with eight weeks of shutdown versus 10 versus 12. Hmm. And, and the two-week increments are very, very important because um, the first two weeks, and we kind of ate into them, I think we were landing somewhere between the eight to 10-week mark. That, that basically was allowing us to ramp up and ha- gave us some slack in the schedule towards the end of the year for things like the, the usual plant shutdown and, and being able to build in third, um, you know, third shifts, et cetera. The second, the second piece was, was really where that schedule gets very, very tight. And beyond that, um, the time is non-recoverable. You, you don't have enough capacity to make up for the two to three months that the industry was offline. So that, that's really going to be a question as we, as over the next month, are we able to get back to that steady state? Are we going to be able to get some settling of this wobble that's going on? And if so, are we going to have enough, um, enough tools at our disposal to be able to uh, build parts to recover some of those two to three months? in terms of volume. That's Thank the make side. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mike, anything you want to add to that before I move on? Uh, well, I think we see some movers that are using the opportunity uh, to introduce some real structural change. I think we've seen some interesting moves from Nissan. Um, some of that just coincidentally uh, is occurring around the same time as this, but uh, one can imagine that it would influence the kind of decisions on a, at a wholesale level whether there's you know, major restructuring of plants, major restructuring of whole product lines. Uh, and I don't think that decisioning cycle is complete. I would uh, certainly guess that we'll see a number of other major structural uh, moves, whether it's in the OEs or the supply base, uh, potentially more you know, mergers and acquisitions as well. Um, so I think those three months of shutdown or two months of shutdown when, when on the front end of this, we were looking at it as a pause in production. What we are now seeing, at least from my perspective, is really some major structural changes that will come about because of this, as opposed to just a production pause. Mike and Bill, forgive the, the pun of the metaphor. I was going to say, while well, the wheels weren't turning and running off the production line, the wheels were spinning in the minds of the leadership. They were turning, saying, what do we need to do next? Where do we need to go? And Bill's Bill shaking his head here. So let me move on. Bill, you told me, uh, you sent me some notes before, and you say, um, as automotive suppliers work through the COVID-19 recession, it's become clear to the executives you're speaking with that this is important. Everybody listen up. Key processes and operating models, once believed to be elective, are now essential to create that go-forward corporate resilience. Bill, talk to us a little bit about that resilience, and then we'll see what Mike at Capgemini has to say. Yeah, so I mean, now that we're moving from recovery into resilience and eventually to return to growth, one of the things that we're finding with our supplier um, customers uh, we, we, we work with a number of them that support some very large OE programs. And, and typically, you know, the, the model for a, a company that's, um, that's perhaps regionally based and one that's, um, that's in growth mode is I'm going to set up a facility or a plant to take care of OEMA's business. And I'm going to feed that facility basically using simple communication, EDI, however the order management process is. And, it, and it's going to be very plant location based. The problem is... And, and most folks are very comfortable, at least in the early stages of their growth, um, operating that way before they have large global operations. The problem with that is, is that, as we've talked about on this program and others, if you have an event, let's say a, a part disruption or you have a health event with an individual that may be test positive for the coronavirus, um, you you have to somehow subset either the workforce or close the facility entirely. And you need to have the ability to take the, the healthy workforce and, and reallocate them to either other, other programs or other tasks or work from home or, and, or you need the ability, ability to flex that manufacturing so that those parts or the kitting or the subassembly can be done at another location and basically reroute the inbound logistics. 
Many of the smaller suppliers, and I'm talking those even up to one or two billion dollars in global revenue, and in, in some cases above, are not able to do that. They have dedicated facilities, dedicated lines, people trained for those facilities. And, and the conversations that we've, you know, we've always had, you know, the, hey, when you're ready to grow, let's help you do this. And they're like, great, that's, that's you know, good, good look to the future for us when we need to grow and we need to have multiple shifts and multiple lines running for these programs and common platform parts, et cetera. Now they're realizing that they can't wait until they're ready to make that tick up on their growth curve. You know, this is really going to be a game of survival and the companies that can continue to ship parts at quality, at volume, um, at, at, and, and keep and preserve their margins are the ones that are going to win. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what I think Mike alluded to, and, and that's going to be some of the fiscal challenges that some of these uh, companies are going to have, particularly as we get out in another 90, 120 days. But just the sheer logistics of building parts and flexing your workforce is, is more uh, necessary now than elective in the past. Thank you, Bill. Very interesting. It sounds like leadership, uh, shop floor managers or, or four people or whatever they call themselves these days, have to be able to pivot, be agile, flexible, and the workforce has to be willing to make those moves and those shifts. You're not working here today. We're moving you to this line. We're moving you to home. If somebody does turn out to be ill or suspecting that they might have the virus, very interesting. That, that makes it dynamic, doesn't it, Bill? That means minute by minute, production becomes a dynamic, almost a chess game. Where where will we move? Interesting. Mike Lakovic, love to get your thoughts on this one. 100% concur with Bill. Uh, it is a staple of the, the modern industry. We refer to it sometimes as agility, but it is the ability to optimize your mix and volume and price based on where that demand is and where it can shift and where you can produce it and get it to market quickly. The idea that you can just pick a low-cost country and just you know, make, 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 and, and send it on a ship is just not going to be the future world order, at least in the, for, in the you know, foreseeable future. The idea of being able to balance that across your global network is more critical now than it ever has been. Uh, as Bill alluded to, companies have been, we'll say, playing with this at times. We can't anymore. This is now a fundamental aspect of what always will demand. It is a fundamental aspect of being able to respond to these types of disruptions. And it also touches on the notion of what is a supplier's competitive differentiation. It is not necessarily a plant-based or a manufacturing plant-based growth strategy. It now is about what is your innovation? How are you going to deal with disruptions? How can you service my needs and my customers when these things occur? How agile are you and at what price? We know basic supply chain theory says you can buy down risk, you can buy up risk, you can, but it does come at a price. And so when you infuse uh, the concept of agility and balancing your production along with doing it at an intelligent price point, so you don't just simply price yourselves out, we don't just dramatically increase the cost of all the vehicles, then it starts to get a bit tricky. And there are certainly some companies that have gotten ahead of this. Uh, and, and, and there are some great examples. We won't you know, use names here, but there are really some great examples of companies that have gone through the journey of having independent PL-based plant plants that kind of did their own thing to truly, I'm going to refer to it as an integrated manufacturing network. And that has allowed them and continues to allow them to dial up or dial down where they need to much faster and at a more intelligent price point than others. Thank you, Mike. Interesting. You brought me to the next topic I want to discuss with both of you. Supply chain disruption. It could be a weather-related event. It could be a tsunami in Asia, right? It could be a trade war. We certainly know there's a lot of that going around in the world or what we're dealing with right now and trying to see our way out of a global health crisis. So global supplier executives, and again, we're talking about that agility word that would be able to pivot, to reprioritize, to see the way forward and be able to pivot again if you need to. Global supplier executives need to have multi-regional aspects 
make, buy, and sell their OE and aftermarket parts. Bill, you want to tackle this one? Sounds very, very important. Well, it, it, it gets back to the wobble. I mean, you know, we, we, were, we were all trying to become supply chain experts, um, you know, with the trade wars and, and actually had some really good news in the first part of the year with some preliminary agreements being in place, particularly with USMCA and the, um, which, which still is going into effect, by the way, in, in another, I believe, 30 days, as well as the, the China-US trade discussions. And now, um, now folks are having to kind of revisit those plans, you know, we, uh, where you have to basically look at where am I getting my parts, where am I building, and where am I selling? And there's going to be some um, re-evaluation of these, of, of where particularly in market the parts are coming from. I mean, we even had, just just the other week we ended up getting a bit of a of a shockwave when when the uh, ministry director of health in Mexico required uh, a, a number of new documents that were very unclear in a very short period of time and and nearly suggested that um, the plants that were already open would have to potentially close and then reopen again. Fortunately, we were able to kind of, you know, work our way through that and get everybody again comfortable with uh, the restart dates and, you know, move into this recovery stage that we're at. But, you know, I've already spoken with, you know, one uh, OE team that operates, you know, both, both in the United States and Mexico. That little incident um, was not uh, missed. It was it was noted. And, um, you know, when you have to make a decision in terms of where to invest your capacity, you know, do you put it in China versus Vietnam? Do you put it in the United States or, or Canada or Mexico? And these are the type of things as we work through this crisis and we, we return or, or go to the next normal, those are the things that people are going to remember, and it's going to affect their decision-making, whether you're a big OE brand, assembling vehicles, or you're a small TRX supplier. Everybody's going to be, everybody's watching right now how everybody, you know, how things operate, how we treat each other, um, how, how flexible we can be while we try to all return back to work. Um, you know, to, to quote a uh, to quote one of our customer, it's times like these you find out who your friends are, and uh, I think that that's really important for everybody you know listening to to keep in mind. You know, it's not just kindness, but there's a certain level of understanding. And yes, while we're running a business, we we have to play the short game but keep the long game in mind because you know we'll all be working together in the future, or or we may choose not to. So mm, empathy yeah. and a shared vision. Thank you, Bill. Mike, love to get your thoughts on the concept of a multi-regional assets approach to global supply. What do you see? Well, I think it, it goes back to how do we structure our, our networks to meet our, our consumer needs at the proper price point? And, and, I'll, and I'll go back to a comment, Bonnie, that you introduced this notion of these, these disruptions, uh, virus, tsunami, uh, I, I think what we'll continue to see is disrupt, or I'll call refer to it as organic disruption, as opposed to you know geological, uh, or right, where the product itself is going to demand a faster response to market needs. Right now, we may have a three or a five or even a seven-year program on a particular you know say 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 component construct. We see that in the relatively near term, right? Within a de decade or even sooner, condensing down into three-year product runs, maybe even maybe even less. And so it becomes even more critical to what Bill is referencing and how do you react to that. The, the idea that you have one massive, ubiquitous, uh, linear supply chain may no longer serve the future market. So the idea that you may have to break that down into some smaller components that maybe are a little bit more nimble regional based um, I think probably it makes sense for for many areas now certainly extremely high capital ubiquitous parts say brakes brakes are brakes there may be some true product innovations we see in that but much of that vehicle mix especially when we talk about electrification or other other types of uh, you know engines you, know, you really are starting to see that, the number of parts in a vehicle may go down, 
but the number of parts at the wholesale level, so the whole industry is going to go up because there's new technologies we're introducing, new power, whole new powertrains, whole new concepts for in-vehicle experience. Uh, and, and I think we'll start to see that formulate itself into potentially smaller, more nimble segments of bigger suppliers because we still see the consolidation happening right before our very eyes. Um, whether it's a regional base, as Bill suggested, or whether it's a you know product based remains to be seen. And it's probably based on, it probably depends on which product we're talking about. Some products should be closer to the market. Maybe other products need to be in a lower cost country. Uh, but it certainly seems reasonable to suggest that these huge monolithic supply chains that are built on seven-year programs probably are going to start to go away. And I know that probably makes some people nervous and some people may vehemently argue against that point, but we're already seeing it. Mike, I think you introduced uh, the word excitement into the conversation. You talked about new onboard experiences. You talked about new engine power models. Uh, there's still a, a lot of forward motion in the industry, isn't there? We've, we've been all been waiting for that elusive, safe, self-driving car. And we talk about more options on the power grid for electric vehicles. And there's still there was so much that was on the table for conversation. Was it there, Bill and, and, and Mike, before this hit? And now the question is just getting back, restarting, resilience, recovering, retooling, re-rolling. Uh, we, want, we want to see all that exciting stuff. People still love their cars and their vehicles. Bill, I know this is a little off topic, but why don't you in my comment and, and then I'll get, get back to our, uh, our agenda here. Bill? Well, no, it's very relevant. I mean, you know, as part of, you know, this recovery model, uh, building battery electric vehicle platforms is very capital and labor intensive. It is, it's, it, that's why there were a lot of partnerships that were, mm -hmm. you know, as Mike, you alluded to earlier that were coming out. And so a lot of that work is getting, um, is, is getting paused currently interestingly because of the capital outlay now interestingly and, and and oh by the way in case you didn't notice the whole rideshare economy is blown up right now i mean until yep. until people are comfortable getting into a car that who you know they don't know who where it's been and all of that that's you know i can only speak for north america marketplace it's it's pretty much you know the ubers and lifts of the world are delivering food and cargo now yep. um so interesting, though, the connected and autonomous uh, areas of most uh, large OE business and their supply chain are uh, getting a bit of a double click, though, on uh, connected and autonomous work, because as you deal with a situation where people are more akin or obliged to touchless concierge delivery or services or what have you, taking the driver out of the equation might actually be something that we want to get to sooner as opposed to later. It all comes down to cash outlay. And, you know, again, that was a topic that, that Mike, you touched on that we'll probably dive into a little bit. Mike, comments on this? What do you think? Moving forward, ideas and concepts and excitement in the industry. You seeing any of that yet? Absolutely. I don't think this virus stymied the innovation and excitement that we have as a group of consumers and all the neat things we've always wanted and think we're going to get. I don't think it's stymied uh, certainly the American spirit for wanting our own vehicle and hitting the open roads. I don't think it's stymied our uh, interest in personalization, customization, and that sense of ownership. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of research that suggests that this, to Bill's point, this may even reinvigor reinvigorate that even more. And, uh, so this is all exciting moving forward. I mean, it really, there's no, there's no major, uh, I don't think, personal opinion, I don't think this is a major, uh, uh, major stoppage in perpetuity. I think it's a pause. Yeah, just, just, to, just to one more, just to echo on that one more and to give the listeners a little bit of uh, um, some material they can dive into. Um, the Experience Per Mile Consortium that was led by uh, Harmon uh, recently published their EPM 2030 outlook. And, and to Mike, your point, uh, long-term trends are, are even more double down. And, and this is the type of, of uh, drive transportation experience uh, consumers are looking and that uh, the industry will deliver. Um, again, I think just the near-term pause button on a few of those uh, investments um, are, is just simply prudent um, as, as we 
uh, return to a certain uh, growth pattern over the next whatever that is, six to 12 months, hopefully. Yeah, Bill, to that point, I mean, we were on a growth trajectory that I think will pick back up. But bear in mind that while this is all occurring, we are still on the forefront of introducing new manufacturing capabilities that we've been talking about for a long time. And you're starting to really see some traction with 3D printing or additive manufacturing, um, different supply chain concepts. These are all still in front of us. And so when we think about compressing those product life cycles or new product introduction or higher forms of customization or maybe even major, major aftermarket constructs where you can sell a base vehicle, but then go some, you know, go to the dealership to get all these, these new constructs, we're still on the front edge of that. Uh, and so the future is still very, very bright. This, the, the unknown is how fast can the consumer market get back to spending? Absolutely. Big question mark. Let, let's go to the business model part of this conversation. Uh, Bill, I know ERP is one of your favorite topics and you say compounding the complexity. He's wincing. is are the, the remnants of plant-based ERP and Bill says they simply cannot meet these needs or the need to adapt to new business models or acquisitions coming out of the COVID-19 crisis. We, we talked a little bit about this earlier. What, what do you think? What kind of ERP do they need? Well, I mean, you know, we we are we believe uh, at SAP that a enterprise-based approach is best. Uh, we believe that it offers the flexibility and agility that um, suppliers need to respond quickly to the changing marketplace. Uh, it it it's it's um, it's tough for us to watch our. Um, our colleagues who are in a situation where they aren't taking advantage of current technologies, you know, deal through, you know, work through the the massive spreadsheet consolidations at the end of every uh, month, quarter, year, um, have how to pull together their sales forecasts. It, it's 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 tough to watch. Um, obviously, you know that that takes an investment, but we do believe that um, as we are able to take advantage of cloud-based technologies and other best practices uh, in the industry that uh, that those capabilities are much more in reach with um, large and mid-tier suppliers than they were 10, 5, even 2 years ago. So um, I, I think there's a real opportunity as people now are scanning the horizon as they're getting back to work, as they're beginning to recover to their production schedules, and they're looking ahead for different ways that they can build greater resiliency into their operations to, to take some of these um, ideas that were on the shelf and pull them down and uh, have a fresh look at them given today's, um, today's technologies. I think there's a real opportunity for that. Thank you. Mike, join us. Thoughts, please. ERP. Well, a little bit of a consulting point of view. I think it depends on how you define the word enterprise. And that is going to be situational, either by a company or even a department within a company. Um, but within the construct of a logical enterprise, we certainly agree with, with SAP that uh, we call it enterprise resource planning for a reason. And there are uh, typically... Uh, most predominantly, very strong financial business case to a level of uh, cohesive operations analysis, common supply chain, common accounts payable, AR, uh, indirect, sometimes direct procurement. Certainly, there's a strong business case for ERP. That's why it's such a large. Uh, that's why it's such a large and ubiquitous part of the global manufacturing construct. Um, having said that, there are some companies that do very well as a portfolio company where you may have different business units or businesses within that portfolio that operate in very different market segments with different product sets. And, and at times there can be a justification for you know, multiple versions of this, if you will. But within where we see within a common customer base, particularly when you see a common set of products, yes, we certainly agree that there are significant benefits to having a true enterprise uh, level of execution and within the, let's just be clear, within the automotive market supply base, some of the very large customers, some of the very large companies do have a distributed operating model. Um, most don't. 
So when we think about the top 200 or top 300 suppliers in the world, of those, I would, you know, I would argue the large percentage of them, by definition, have a more, mm, a more concise operating model that would significantly benefit from um, having those kinds of cohesive operations and, uh, and cohesive planning. Thank you, Bill. Anything you want to say back to Mike before I move on? No, I think we've I think I think we've driven this. Other than um, analytics plays a huge role in this, and outbound looking at sentiment. So whether it's your employees, are they comfortable coming back to work? Are your suppliers comfortable shipping parts to you? Those are all new components as we look at what we do next to run our businesses. And it all needs to be wound into you know, the discussion. So Bill and Mike, I have a, a couple of sentences here that are going to pop a lot of buzzwords and uh, uh, cool stuff in all together. Let's wrap it up with a bow. And then we still have to cover the cash is king topic, Bill. So I didn't forget that at the end. I think everybody wants to hear that. So listen up, everybody. Global automotive suppliers need to, and here's where I'm going to put a lot of words in. They need to build resilience and they need to build fitness into the design, source, make, sell, and delivery process for vehicle parts. And not only is this a task, they have to ensure company-wide visibility. Everybody has to look at each other, no silos, real-time accuracy, no more spreadsheets at the end of the quarter or the end of the year, Bill said, and flexibility that they did not need before. Bill, this sounds like a Herculean task for forward-looking, strong, motivated, dedicated leadership. Is that what we're talking about here? Well, it certainly does need that leadership, and leadership needs to, you know, start from the top and be supported by the folks that are that are executing the business day by day, which typically is where the pain all lies. I mean, they're the ones that have to, you know, work with outdated technologies and processes, and you know, um, and, and and really, that's I think that is, you know, our mantra is is that as as we go into this new age where we do have the opportunity to put fresh eyes on old problems at a new time, you know, what can we do to make things better given all of the changes that our employees have to deal with anyways, going back to work in this new environment? Can't we do, can't we do some things to make their, their lives a little bit easier and take some of the, the work off their plate, whether it's through new technologies like robotic process automation. So I don't have to do basic accounting all the time. I'm rather just checking entries or um, some of the, some of again, the consolidation pieces or having the flexibility to try new things uh, because you know we've got an HR policy that's more open to a multi-facility, multi-skills-based uh, talent journey for our employees. I really do think that that's the, you know, again, with every risk and in, in inside chaos, there is opportunity. I truly do believe that that's the opportunity that lays before us. Mike, thoughts, please. Uh, I concur with Bill. Of course, uh, as partners in crime, we, we share many, uh, many, many shared perspectives. Um, I think that as we, as we proceed into this new space, um, we will continue to see, and I use the phrase, winners rise. Um, as we see some of the OEs making some restructuring during this time frame, uh, it is also the for those who have proper cash flow and capitalization, of course, we've got financial constraints. Now is a great time to introduce some of this restructuring. And the concept of, we'll use the big you know, term transformation, the opportunity to make the leap from what we consider to be kind of a traditional operating model to one that we really truly believe will, will last the next generation, the next 15 to 20 years uh, of operating concepts. Now's a great time. And the other, you know, sort of, I guess, plug back to our listeners would be the transformation is not nearly as hard as it used to be. It's just not. The capabilities have matured tremendously. Uh, I think as a general industry, we've started to really, for the most part, adopt certain key best practices as kind of an operating norm. And we've also, for the most part, uh, companies are agreeing that their differentiation, what makes them excellent, is actually only a fraction of their overall company. And so we can start to more readily accept and adopt fairly typical ways of working 
and spend our time and energy focused on really what is going to help us win and really rise. And so when we look at some kind of classic MBA question, what is your business? And we, we really start to understand it is not necessarily our prototypical operations of how to run a company. It's product differentiation. It's our customer base. It's our innovation. It's uh, our supply chain, our agility. It's our customer commitment. And those are not embodied with transactional processes. Those are embodied in the people, and the culture, and yes, some differentiated processes. So we would continue to encourage our listeners and our clients to focus on what makes you great and adopt some level of standardization on the things that probably don't. That is how you can cost effectively enable transformation and get your company to where you feel you need to be. Thank you. And that may be a moving target where you feel your company may need to be in this very dynamic market. Let's cover one more topic. And I'm dying to ask both of you about robotics. This is a good time for automotive OEs to invest in robotic RPA, robotic process automation. Bill's nodding his head. Uh, bring in some specialized robotics to alleviate some of the questions of should people be on this production line? Maybe we can use them for something else, retrain the people and use robotics. Bill, you seeing anything? Just We could just touch this briefly. Billy, what, what are you seeing or what do you suggest? Well, you know, with the, the, the protective uh, equipment that people have had to come in and use and kind of I don't know if I would call it unleaning, but basically some of the minor redesigns at the at the production level. Um, some of the examples that we've seen uh, do do involve some some tweaking, some repositioning, maybe some extra steps. I haven't seen, at least not yet, um, a a a full uh, or a hard uh, elimination of of uh, human assets at the production line. Mm-hmm. But I do think that where the opportunity is is in the is in artificial intelligence and robotic process automation, where there are certain mundane tasks, as I mentioned earlier, basic accounting, um, invoice reconciliation, sales order reconciliation, uh, in uh, resume matching, you know, for HR. I mean, there are some really great opportunities. And, and and not new technology, very proven technology mm-hmm. that's been around for the last two, three, four years, where companies can begin to um, again make things a little easier, make things a little better for their employees who are coming back to work and you know trying to uh, you know hit the recovery um, uh, reset button here with these companies. Um, so I do think that that is is predominantly predominantly where where the opportunities are. We'll have to kind of take a wait and see in terms of what the shop floor looks like. Um, there's going to be a lot of reluctance on the part of a number of OEMs to unlean their processes. And if that means that due to worker health and safety, additional automation needs to be introduced, we're just going to have to kind of wait and see where that goes. Uh, but I do think in the in the AI RPA spaces, uh, that's that's prime territory for improvements right now. Mike, what do you think? Agree or disagree with Bill? I'm probably a little bit more maybe bullish or optimistic um, than Bill in this regard. I think that RPA, and to your point, Bill, there are at this point fairly standard RPA opportunities uh, that uh, really, really should and I know the word should is dangerous sometimes, but should be put into place because they are fairly ubiquitous. These are not necessarily new technologies, uh, but sometimes there's a hesitation to introduce something uh, with a potential feeling of loss of control. But but what it allows for is, again, to automate, we're spending time and money on, on human activity that could be automated and allow that human activity to focus on better decision-making more analysis, work with the AI, work with the technology, not necessarily always worried about being replaced by it. Uh, there definitely is shop floor automation uh, that the, the momentum is still there. Uh, there obviously in the last you know generation, last 15, 20 years, there's been a lot of robots introduced on the floor, ro- robot, you know, welding, um, five axis, three axis machines that people are Again, the, the word ubiquitous. I mean, they're just out there now, and they've and they've evolved to a point where it's more of a science and less of an art because it's become so relatively commonplace. 
But that same construct is true for how we execute typical business functions, managing, identifying and managing late invoices, identifying and, and managing your accounts, you know, accounts receivable. And how can we automate that? Looking at where our biggest uh, profitability areas lie or profitability opportunities lie. I think these are things that very much could, and, and I'll use the dangerous word, should really be introduced. We are seeing uh, some great momentum in, in the market. Obviously, right now, everything's been put on hold because of the virus, uh, but we are very bullish on this. We do think these are now becoming low-hanging fruit. I would, again, encourage our, our audience listeners, look into it. It's right, it's right in front of you. Thank you, Mike. I'm going to wrap this up, put a bow around it. And the topic Bill wants to finish with is when cash is king, extending resilience and opportunity. Who's got the cash, Bill? Where is it? Talk to me. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I, I, think, I think that there are a number of brands that, that were able to tap their credit lines pretty early and pretty successfully. And, um, um, and in fact, uh, you know, there were a couple of transactions between suppliers that, that got a little sticky there because, you know, they had to tap their, their credit lines and, you know, who wants to buy a company and another billion, you know, 500, $500 million worth of credit that you have to accommodate for as a part of the transaction. But I think that the thing to watch, and it, and it came out in, in the most recent OESA uh, supplier survey, so listeners can um, be directed to, the, to their downloads to have a look at that. There's there's going to be there's going to be a couple of moments at the end of June end of July where some of the programs like the PPP programs um, are going to begin to expire or at least the funds will have run their course and as one individual has said you know we get paid ninety to one hundred and twenty days out and we still have you know, accounts payable that are due in the next 30 days. So there's really going to be a gap window while people are running, getting this big machine that's called the automotive industry and getting their accounts and getting everything up and running to this big money flywheel working again. It's not just going to happen overnight. There's going to be about 60 to 90 days in there um, where bills will need to be paid and, and you know, finance and controller folks are going to have to be pretty clever and astute in order to figure out how to uh, keep, keep the boat, keep the boat moving in the right direction without taking on too much water before all the uh, receivables start coming in. So that's, that's a big point to watch. Um, you know, we don't, we don't want to see some of our suppliers become the latest division of their customer. So it's, it's really good. Um, it's a very good time to, to take care of things internally in that perspective. Thank you, Bill. Mike Lakovic, final word before we wrap up. What do you think about cash is king? Will it be? Should it be? How long can it be? Cash is absolutely king. And right now the consumers hold it and it needs to restart and it needs to start flowing like the wonderful currency uh, that it is. Uh, I think that uh, the OEs have done a, um, a bit of an opinion. I think they've done a good job trying to stabilize things in an extremely delicate situation. I think they've clearly tapped into their cash reserves. Uh, I think that we have seen the entire industry try to accommodate and support one another. Uh, we've seen you know rebalancing of payment terms. We've seen uh, deferred payments across the board from you know top to bottom. You've seen the the uh, major financing programs that some of them have, I think most now have put into place on on seven-year, 0% APR on, uh, on some of these vehicles. I think what's very interesting is how that's going to – we know we've got to restart and, and, and get things going in the next you know, few months here. I'm very interested to see how that persists over the next 12 to 18 months, particularly when you look at the overall production forecast is kind of down, and you're seeing these extremely extended payment terms – how fast can this cash situation really recover? How long is it? How long is this going to be with us? And where? How does that flow down? I'm going to call it the constrained, the constrained capital. How long does that hold us back over the next six, 12, 18 months? Because ultimately, if cash isn't coming in, you're going to constrain how much you spend and where you put your capital. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Bill. 
wrap up one sentence, Bill, of wishing well to your colleagues at OESA and in the industry, and then Mike will wrap up with you, and then I'm going to thank you both, and we'll say bye-bye for now. Bill, what's your final word? Well, I kind of felt like we left everyone with a bit of a bummer on that last, <laughs> on that last <laughs> conversation. So, so first of all, I just want to thank all of my colleagues in the automotive supplier space for, for really doing a great job and the kind people at OESA. I mean, these really are unprecedented times. The, the things we do now will be the stories we tell our grandchildren in the years to come. So truly, it, 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 is, it is one for the history books. Um, you know, it, it's 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 not a time to take risk, but it is a time to look very plainly at how you want your business to look like um, as we start to emerge from this. And I know this because our, our customers um, use these words with me. So I'm going to wish everybody well today. We're going to keep the conversation going. And again, thanks to you, Bonnie, and to Mike for another very uh, enthralling conversation today. It actually was an enthralling conversation. I wish we had another hour, but we don't. Mike Lakovic, final word. I can give you about 90 seconds. That's all. Excellent. Let me start by saying that our industry continues to burn bright. And to all of our colleagues and to all of our customers, keep it going. Keep people safe. The momentum we had hasn't gone. It's just on pause. The opportunity before us hasn't gone. It's right in front of us. We have a unique industry that I'll say is like none other. We are a family. You see that play out in in how even even competitors sometimes engage in sharing best practices because ultimately all of us know that all boats float with the high tide. And it is remarkable to see the passion and energy and innovation and humility and compassion that has come out in all of these trying times with an understanding that we're all trying to get back to work, we're all trying to take care of our families, and we're all trying to sell more cars. Bravo. Thank you for ending on a high note, both of you. I want to do a shout out to Adam Slayman and April Buford and Julie Freem at OESA. Anybody want more information about this wonderful organization? OESA.org. That's OESA.org. I'm Bonnie D. Graham signing off and thank you to our friends at Voice America, the business channel for getting us the opportunity to record this wonderful conversation. Be well, be smart, stay safe, and find something fun to drive when you finally get out of that driveway in that garage. My car is saying, take me for a ride. I need exercise. Everybody have a great day. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Thank you, Bill Newman. Thank you, Mike Lakovic. Talk to you soon again. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Automotive Insiders, presented by OESA. Listen at your convenience to industry thought leaders as they discuss the ever-evolving industry and how companies can thrive in the new mobility landscape. All episodes are on demand on the Voice America Business Channel and at OESA.org. Automotive Insider is presented by the Original Equipment Suppliers Association.